preaching of God's Word comes from Ezekiel 36, as we read earlier, and we particularly look at verse 37, Ezekiel 36, and there at verse 37, here once again the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. This verse comes at the end of this chapter, which is full of tremendous promises, promises that could not have been seen with the seeing of the eye as they should come to be fulfilled, because at the moment, the land of Israel is considered desolated, desecrated, destroyed, and without one to care for it. The wall is torn down of Jerusalem, and all of these things that we know of elsewhere is true in this portion of Ezekiel's prophecy. And yet, as we noted in the reading, the chapter begins with this encouraging word, as God addresses the land and testifies that it shall yet be inhabited and flourish. It shall once again be tilled and bring forth fruit. And though currently it is, as it were, a den of wild beasts, it shall become again the place of households and praise. And yet, as we saw in the reading of God's Word, you'll notice again that God must address the root problem. And the root problem is not the land. It's not even the nations around the land. It was the covenant people within the land who had turned astray from God and have profaned God's great name. But God remembered His promise and holds forth the assurance that He would not only restore Israel to the land, but first restore grace unto Israel. As you see there, for instance, in verse 23, And following through verse 27, it's then, verse 28, that ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And it is first that, verse 29, he will be, he will save them from all their uncleannesses. And then that he will call for the corn and will increase it. It is first that God will deal with the sinful people. And then that he will deal with the desecrated land. And so there are rich promises here, and you can imagine being in captivity and thinking of this portion and being stirred up with encouragement. And yet God protects us from presumption. He doesn't give us a promise to presume upon. He gives us a promise to lay hold of. This brings us to the text, verse 37. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. To be inquired of is to be asked. To come and inquire with God, Lord, will you bring this to pass now? And you can think of how often we use that kind of expression. God, would you do this? God, will you please bring this to pass? These are, as it were, holy and fervent questions. And yet they're more than questions. They're petitions. And this is precisely what God wants us to do when we come into contact with a promise. And what an encouragement it is to see even embedded in this passage a further assurance. I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. And then notice, I will increase them with men like a flock. The whole of the chapter is one extended encouragement of promise. 
and it's throughout the whole of the opening, and yet here it brings forth this duty, this call, this exhortation to pray, and yet it concludes with encouragement. This reminds us that in prayer we pour out our hearts to God. We ask Him for these things we earnestly desire. As you can imagine being in captivity and saying, oh, that I could be back. You see it in Nehemiah when he hears word from those who came from Jerusalem and he inquires how things were. And they speak of how it's torn down and uh, destroyed. And what does Nehemiah do? He uh, rends his clothes and he fasts and he puts ashes upon himself and he prays. And what does he pray? Well, fundamentally, he prays Ezekiel 36. That God would forgive His people, renew His people, and restore them to the land. Well, several things must be true for true prayer. We must have the true object of prayer, that is, the one to whom we pray. We don't pray to the deceased saints. We don't pray to false gods. We don't pray to powers, abstractly considered. We pray to God. Christ, of course, teaches this when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. We are also in need of having the way of access to God, which is only by the mediator, Jesus Christ. Of course, under the Old Testament, it was anticipated, and with types and shadows held forth, the great and high priest would be there, and the people were being taught that in order to access God, they had need of the mediator. Promises were given as well throughout the Scriptures, and the New Testament, of course, holds forth the way of access most clearly, so simply that even children memorize John 14 when it says, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we need to know the one to whom we pray. We need to know the way of accessing this one. We need to know our need as well, because we'll never pray, at least in any way worthy of the word, unless we have a sense of our need, whether personal needs or needs on behalf of others or for the church more broadly considered. But in all of this, if it is to be true prayer, there must be the exercise of faith. There must be not just the wishing, not just the desiring, but the assurance that I'm drawing near with confidence and trust in the Lord. I think for a moment how James addresses this point when he's addressing our not having because our not asking. And so in James chapter 4, a familiar passage to us, he testifies at the end of verse 2, ye have not because ye ask not. And so there is this importance of asking, and yet asking properly. He says, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lust. It must be a pure desire a sincere desire. And of course, James as well testifies of this in other ways. Scriptures are full of these things that as we ask, we're to ask and yet not to be double-minded. So earlier in James chapter 1, with specific focus on wisdom, if any man lack, verse 5, wisdom, let him ask of God. There's the requesting. He has the need. I lack wisdom. He goes to God. He requests, here's the encouragement, this God gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. He that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, 
driven with the wind and tossed, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So you can see the importance of prayer, the simplicity of prayer, of course. And yet what our text particularly exhorts us to is the exercise of faith. God lays a broad and firm foundation. Here are the promises I'm holding forth to you. You're not just to look at the promises. You're not just to learn the promises. You're not just to think highly of the promises and be amazed of the promises. God says you're to pray the promises. You're to draw near to me and ask me to do it. I've given my word. Now I come to you, God says, and I say, hold me to my word. Have you ever thought of that in prayer? In one sense, the boldness of prayer comes near to God through the mediation of Christ, cleansed, forgiven, accepted, reconciled, and it comes to God and says, I hold you to your word. Not because of any dignity in ourselves, not because of any worthiness in ourselves, but because this is precisely what God would have us to do. It's not a casual approach. It's not a commanding approach. It is an assured, confident, and gracious approach that God would have us to enjoy. We'll consider then two things as we consider praying the promises. We wish to look firstly at the nature of God's promises and secondly at the use of God's promises. Of course, primarily with reference to prayer. So the nature of God's promises and the use of God's promises. Now before we go further, the text is given a specific context. It's given the uh, sense of captivity and the desolation of God's promised land and the people who had been uh, driven out and the particular sins. And yet you'll notice that the richest of spiritual blessings are promised in this chapter. When you look at verse 25 and onward through verse 27, the spiritual blessings are there. The forgiveness of sins, the sanctifying of the people and the strengthening of them to love the Lord God and to delight in His law. You see, brethren, though it's true there were specific historical things that Ezekiel 36 holds forth under the Old Covenant, there is as well still the essential thing that is promised unto us even today, the renewal and strengthening of grace in us. We wish then now to look at the nature of God's promises. We can look at this part in three ways. Firstly, noting the general meaning. So, in general, a promise, God's promise, is a declaration or assurance of what God will do. So, God comes to His people in His Word and He declares what He's going to do. I will do this. So we see it, for instance, when he approaches Abram, who will become Abraham, um, I will give you a child. He does the same with uh, countless others where he's giving these declarations of what he's going to do. Now, it's important for us to realize a promise as a declaration of what God will do is not the same as his decree. This is an important distinction to make uh, clear in our mind. A promise is indeed a declaration of what God is going to do, 
But as we'll see, there are some matters that need to be understood about that. A decree is the infallible declaration of his purpose. And so, for instance, he decreed uh, who should be saved. That's not going to change. It's not um, necessitating, necessitating a promise that must be believed. It's going to be brought to pass. He decreed the creation of the world. He decreed the providence of all history. And though there are promises given to us to believe, a decree is, as it were, God's plan that's going to come to pass regardless of what people believe, as it were. And so a promise is different than a decree. A decree is a fixed and established purpose. A decree is going to be carried forth regardless of the use of means. Now, we should be clear, the decree often decrees the use of means, but a decree is distinct from a promise. Moreover, a declaration or assurance of what God will do is different than an observation of a general truth, which many times is found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has promises, but it also has general observations of general directions of truth. For instance, just to see what a promise isn't in the book of Proverbs, you can look at Proverbs chapter 12, and you'll notice as one example, verse 24. It says, The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Now this is an example of a proverbial insight. It's looking at the general trajectory of humanity and the reality of God's working in, uh, among men and says, here's the truth. The diligent, through their diligence, will often come to have a, an exalted position. But the slothful, through their sloth, will be independence. And we see that today. We see that here in St. Louis, where there are multitudes, because of whatever excuses, who don't work. And what are they? Well, they may get payment, they may have a house, but they are largely, as it is, under tribute or under task work. They are, of course, in difficult places. And yet, each of us know that there have been diligent men and women who had yet been made slaves. And it's not because of any lack of diligence, nor is it because of some untruth in God's promise. It's rather here is a general observation that generally speaking, those who are diligent in their calling will, as it were, become exalted among men. Many other examples could be given in the book of Proverbs, but that's not to say that there aren't promises in the book of Proverbs either. It's simply to make this distinction that whereas a promise declares or assures what he will do, an observation, for instance, in the book of Proverbs is a general principle. So we can go from, in general, the nature of God's promise. Now, more specifically, it's a declaration or assurance of what good God will do. This is important because in the promises, God holds forth blessings, good things to us. But there is another type of declaration or assurance of what God will do known as a curse. And so, for instance, you think about the people of Israel divided on the mountains, and on one side there's the pronouncement of blessings, which are fundamentally promises. But on the other side, you have the pronouncement, the declaration of curses, these judgments that God will bring 
should God's people cast off His Word? And so you'll notice two things. Both of them are declarations of what God will do. In the event of trusting and obedience, these blessings will be enjoyed by Israel. But in the event of uh, casual indifference and compromise and unbelief and uh, disobedience, these curses will be brought to pass upon them. Of course, you see in Elijah's day the curses being poured out upon uh, Israel as uh, the, the heavens become as brass and no rain is given, precisely what is threatened in that section as a curse should God's people turn astray. So it's helpful for us to focus and see a promise specifically considered is the declaration or assurance of what good God will bring to pass. Now we next look at the nature of a pro- God's promise by considering a distinction. There's a distinction between an absolute promise and a conditional promise. So what's an absolute promise? Well, as you can hear in the very terms, absolute means it will absolutely come to pass if we speak of it that way. It's not dependent upon whether we believe it or not. So, um, but a conditional promise is a promise that is resting upon a condition being fulfilled. So, for instance, an absolute promise is given to us in the book of Genesis. There are many such throughout the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 8 is, of course, uh, one such example among others. It addresses the promise of uh, no longer being the earth being destroyed by a flood. And so, though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, God says, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Brethren, let's be clear. This is independent of any condition being met by man. And so, for instance, all of the hubbub about the green movement is fear-mongering when it acts as if we're going to destroy the earth. This is not to say that we shouldn't be good stewards of God's creation. This is not to say that we should seek to remedy true abuses and so on that we witness. But it is to acknowledge that God has given an absolute promise that the seasons are going to continue. There will never be a perpetual winter. There will never be a perpetual summer. And there will never be, as it were, the end of these seasons and the changes thereof. This is not based upon us believing it or disbelieving it or whatever else. God has given a promise, and so it shall be. There are other promises that you can think of as well. But we want to focus more on a conditional promise. This is important to hear clearly. Conditional promise, not conditional decree. Conditional decree is heretical teaching. There's no such thing as a conditional decree. God does not elect the, uh, uh, He does not choose the elect on the condition of faith. He has chosen the elect and will give them faith. He has not chosen, as it were, to save the elect upon the condition of faith. He has chosen to save the elect and will give them faith by which they shall be saved. And there are other such things that we could consider. But a conditional promise 
is a particular good that God promises and discloses to us, which He holds forth to us upon some condition. Now, this shouldn't scare us. It doesn't make us Arminian. You can read uh, the most staunch of Calvinists and you will see this very point being made. The thing wherein Calvinists fight against conditions is when it is a conditional decree. But conditional promises are fundamental to the Scriptures. So when the question comes, what must I do to be saved? The apostles don't sit back and say, well, you can't do anything. You're going to have to wait and see. They are without hesitation, ready with an answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. And thou shalt be saved. Here it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved. In other words, God holds forth the promise to be enjoyed by embracing the condition which He has attached to it. You see this, for instance, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It often appears, though not always, there are certainly assumed times, but it will often appear with this notion of if-then. So you see it, for instance, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, here's the assumed then, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why we don't have any hesitation to say if you don't confess your sins, you aren't saved. Because it demands we confess our sins in order to be saved. And you can, of course, think of others as well. Again, to be very clear, we ought not to think that the condition is meritorious or that God has, it were, as it were, left it in the hands of men to bring forth. So, for instance, all of us, I trust, know the promise embedded in John 3 and verse 16. It testifies that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Notice this statement that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, whereas we can make the argument perhaps that it is to be observed, God so loved the world, and this is a saving love of which He's speaking of the world of the elect, that's possible. It's certainly not the uh, universal opinion among the Reformed, but it's possible. Grammatically, verbally, vocabulary-wise, notice the clause that begins with that. It doesn't say that the elect, but it says that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. What's the point? It's coming with a promise. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. You see it again in John chapter 6. When God asserts, Christ asserts, the utter, absolute sovereignty, the decree, unalterable, not conditioned upon anything. Notice John 6.37 All that the Father giveth Me shall come to Me. That's a guarantee. And here then you see the encouragement. Him that cometh to Me, I will in no wise cast out. And so it is that in order to be saved, one must come to Christ. 
So we know, of course, we must believe, we must trust, we must look to the Lord. John 3 tells us that in a variety of places. But this does not mean that God gives us these promises and all men, by nature, simply have the ability to believe the same. Notice, very familiar to you, Ephesians chapter 2, and there at verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. And how does it continue? And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And it goes further, not of works, lest any man should boast. But notice particularly verse 8. The faith is there set forth. But even the faith which we exercise is the provision of God. What does this mean? Well, one thing it means is it is entirely right to acknowledge the utter sovereignty of God over the end, over the means, over the conditions, over the activity within man. But it's also right to acknowledge this, except a man repent and believe, he shall not be saved. That's the condition. One must be saved, but it's not a meritorious condition. It's not something we do of our own nature. And yet when God renews us, John 3, and gives us sight, we now see. When He renews us and gives us a new heart, we now enter in. If we don't see and we don't enter in, we won't be saved. And so, this is important because it starts to make sense of so many things regarding salvation, where you see sometimes God addresses us merely by addressing the condition. You must believe. Other times, He addresses us by the fact of uh, utter sovereignty. As many as God had appointed, believed, right? Other times they're bound up together, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But this is helpful because it makes us to see the way that a promise functions. A promise holds forth to us, a conditional promise in particular, it holds forth to us a disclosure of God's goodness and what He will do upon the condition being met. God will declare us righteous, if we believe upon Jesus Christ. God will receive us as reconciled if we receive Jesus Christ. Right? There's so many things regarding this that we could multiply that come to our own minds. Doubtless the examples promote or come to your own. The point is this. A conditional promise holds forth a good disclosed by God to which He has attached a condition. Something that must be done. But we ought to see, as the Scriptures teach, that condition, though to be fulfilled by us, is only able to be fulfilled by us as God gives us grace to fulfill it. No man comes unto Me unless the Father draws him. John 6.44 All that the Father giveth Me will come unto Me. And him that cometh unto Me I will no wise cast out. John 6.37 And so the sovereignty of God is in back of all of this and at work in all of those who by His grace embrace the promises held forth to them. We've labored this fundamentally so we would better understand how to use His promises. This brings us secondly then to the use of God's promises. And you see in Ezekiel 36, passage for our consideration, that God says, yet for this, will I be inquired of by the house of Israel. And so all these promises are held forth. 
All of these testimonies of what God will do. All of the disclosure of God's goodness. And yet he says, here's the condition. I must be asked. You must ask me. And then you start to hear what James says earlier. You have not because ye ask not. And you start to see why it is that Christ so pushes and causes us to consider how importunate in prayer we ought to be. How diligent, how unceasing we ought to be. And you think of the familiar expression, ask, seek, knock. And yet the Greek is actually ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. The notion is, don't just say, I know God's sovereign, He's good. You assault heaven with prayer. And for a moment before going on to anything else, does this at all describe your experience? Are you one who is assaulting heaven with your prayers? Are you one who gets a sense of what God promises and you send up an arrow and then you shortly forget what the arrow was that you sent up? You see, what God is doing for us is He's holding forth in Ezekiel 36 in particular the riches, the magnitude of His blessings in such ways that Israel would say, I want that. We need that. Now the promise has begun then to have its purpose. (coughs) But God says, and pray for it. And you start to see the parables of Christ and how they're pushing this before us. Pray and don't stop. And Paul says, we cease not to, to pray. And we're to pray at all times and for all things and so on. Prayer is to be this ongoing exercise of our soul. I say you need to breathe in order to live. You don't say, okay, I'm going to take a breath and then I'm going to hold it for 30 years. You keep breathing. You know this. It is the life of one to breathe. And so it is spiritually. We don't say, yeah, I prayed last week. Our whole life is to be an ongoing prayer. And of course, there are discrete and particular deliberate seasons where we're devoted consciously to a comprehensive approach to prayer. We're praying after the pattern perhaps of the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, and onward through the end. Other times we're so focused upon one thing alone that we are isolating all of our attention upon that for a season. But we also know that through the day things happen. We get a phone call and it brings a matter to our mind and we pray. We come to our meal and we say, you know, I prayed this morning. God, give us this day our daily prayer. And so we come to the Lord and we say, thank you for giving us this day our daily bread. And so on. But Notice the use of God's promises serve at least four things to make it simple. The first thing that God's promise does is it informs us of God's good will. Is it not easier to approach someone when you are persuaded that they're willing to give it? If you've ever been involved in fundraising, you can hear people who have been, they speak about getting over this hurdle of realizing they're going to be approaching people for something that they're almost certain is not what they necessarily want to do, to give money. And so they have to find, of course there can be the manipulating aspect, but then they find among Christian circles 
how to encourage stewarding and to lining up one and their uh, resources to a cause in Christ's kingdom for something that is within their interest. You know, these kinds of things take place. But so soon as you're persuaded the person is ready to give the good thing, now it's almost as if there's no hesitation. Well, this is what God's promise does. And brethren, it's not just for Ezekiel 36, though. If it were only for Ezekiel 36, you would have a comprehensive cause of tremendous encouragement. Every promise that God gives is one further insight into what God is willing to do. And then you start to hear what John says in 1 John, if we ask anything according to His will. The promises are the most basic, fundamental, clear testimonies of what He's willing to do. You think of how practically this becomes important. It's easy for an unconvicted sinner to say, well, I'm sure God would forgive me. It's an entirely different thing for someone who's convicted of their sins to become persuaded that God will forgive them. But then you look at the Bible so full of overwhelming, clear promises that He will forgive the sinner who confesses his sin. Why does God do that? It would be sufficient for Him to say it once and to bury it somewhere in the minor prophets, which even some Christians have never opened for their own profit. That would be worthy of what we deserve. But instead, God, throughout the whole of the Scriptures, is full in giving and disclosing His readiness and willingness to forgive sinners who confess their sins. Because He would have it overdo and overthrow the darkness of unbelief and sinful doubt. He's informing us. And so every promise does that. It informs us of what God is willing to do. But secondly, it directs us. It directs us not just as to know what God is willing to do, but it directs us as to what we may confidently put our faith. Now the world, of course, perverts this, and unfortunately, many in the church have done this, where it turns God's rich promises into nothing more than a way to advance in this world. And so it thinks about better cars and better houses and better economy and so on. But God's promises are far better than a better car, a better house, and so on. This isn't to minimize the fact that God promises to provide us whatever we have need of. You can even hear this as Christ is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. And He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Food, clothing, and uh, uh, drink. Everything that you need will be provided you. There's a promise. Therefore, focus on seeking first His kingdom. But here, the promise directs us on what we may confidently rest. It would be audacious without a promise to be in captivity and to say, God, make Jerusalem glorious again. Bring us back. Because think of what's happened. Israel, generations long, had committed idolatry. Israel, generations long, had desecrated the Sabbath. Israel, generations long, had given itself to all manner of immorality. This was going on for generations. And now they would come to God 
and say, you know what, would you bring us back? Well, it would be audacious without a promise, but it would be sinful to neglect when there is a promise. And God holds forth the rich promises of this chapter and elsewhere and says, now pray. How can I be assured? I'm unworthy of this to come and ask for forgiveness, for purity, for restoration. How can I do that? Well, this is how. Look what I've promised. On this you may rest the fullness of your soul's expectation because I've given it to you explicitly. Parent comes to a child and says, you know, here is a hundred dollars. It's for you. Take it. The child looks at the father or the mother and realizes sincerity and without hesitation takes it saying thank you. Not presumptuously, not stealing it from his mom or dad, but receiving it because of the warrant given to him or her to take it. And this is what God is doing with the promise. He's saying you may come to me with these promises with the full expectation that what I've promised I'm good to provide. You can't outright what I've promised. You can't overdraft my account. I've given this to you to confidently rest upon. Third thing it does, having informed us and directing our faith, it then is to draw out our petitions. And this is embedded in the Word. This Yet for this, uh, I will be inquired of, asked of, by the house of Israel to do it. So in other words, the promise is not meant to make us then you know, say, well, that's what God is willing to do. Nor is it meant to persuade us firmly that God would be willing to do it and then leave us never asking Him for it. The promise informs us of His will. It directs us to be persuaded of what He's saying in order that we then may ask Him to do it. So in other words, if you wish to learn this passage, the evidence of it will be not your going to others and saying how good God is, how promises function, and how sure we ought to be of His promises. The evidence that you've understood this passage will be this. Your prayers will multiply for the things He's promised. That will be the evidence. Now surely there's need to go to other Christians and say, look how good God is to give us these promises. Now we can help counsel one another, encourage one another, all that's true. But we haven't really learned from the school of Christ until we then take His promises and bring them before the Father in the name of Christ by the Spirit of grace and supplication and say, everything you've promised, I come and ask, give it. See, that's bold. And yet you read through the book, book of Hebrews and you see again and again this very idea. With boldness we draw near to the throne of grace. We're to come with confidence because of the anchor which is given us to heaven. All of this is true. Christ is regularly putting it as it were within us. Whatsoever you ask in My name, He will give it to you. You look at His petitions or His teaching of us to pray and He says, the Father is willing and will give the Spirit to all that ask Him. He will give the kingdom to all that ask Him. What is bigger than the kingdom of heaven? What is more important and vital than the Spirit of God? 
the things that we hesitate to ask about of temporal things are so far inferior to those great things that it's astounding that we struggle with temporal things. God says to us, I will give you my kingdom. I will give you my spirit if you but ask. We don't then learn the lesson by telling others this is what God is willing to do. We then come to God in faith and we say, give as you've promised. But one of the reasons for this that could be overlooked is the use of God's promises not only inform us and direct us and draw out our petitions, but the Lord has ordered it to advance His purpose. So you look again at the whole of the chapter, and what's God doing? He's sanctifying His great name. Verse 23. He's doing this for His great name. His holy name. And all of a sudden we start to realize that prayer is part of what God uses to advance His kingdom. You see this, for instance, when we sing in Psalm 67. It's so explicit there, it's almost impossible to ignore. We cry out in prayer in accordance to His promise, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. There's the prayer. Here's the purpose. That Thy way may be known upon earth, Thy saving health or Thy salvation among all nations. And you can see it again and again throughout the Scriptures. Here in Ezekiel, what's the point? My name has been defiled. And yet, I have a purpose to bring it back and to glorify My great name again. And the people of God say, praise God. And yet he says, but in order for that to happen, you must pray. Now this isn't God saying, wringing His hand, saying, oh, I really hope that you pray because I really hope that it's going to come to pass. You know, my name is, 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 is resting upon this. No. Remember that God pours out the Spirit of grace and supplication. This is one of the things that Paul says has been given us. The Spirit of grace and supplication now abides within us. So the Lord not only gives the end, He not only appoints the means, among which is prayer, but He also enlivens us in order to pray. But notice how it functions. It's not just by some sovereign zapping of us. He treats us according to our natures. He knows we think because He made our minds. He knows we desire because He's made our hearts. He knows our wills desire and choose because He's made that. And so He argues with us. He presents promises to us. He encourages us. And mysteriously, by the sovereign work of the Spirit, He works through that, enlivening us to pray. Who's praying? Well, the believer's praying. But how is it that he ever prays? Well, the Lord uses the means of exhortation and warning and promises. But fundamentally, the Spirit works within them and quickens them unto prayer. And as He does so, we come. Think of how Christ teaches us. He says, when you pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. What does He do? He answers the prayer. And He brings forth His kingdom into our lives and into others. Well, there's much, of course, here, but we close with these points. First, if we're to benefit from the promises, we must learn the promises. 
You have to learn the promises. When the world says, learn your own heart, follow your own heart, the Bible says, learn the Word of God. And of vital importance for prayer, for encouragement, for comfort, for assurance, in the face of everything else that is seen, it is most needed that you learn the promises. It would be a good exercise to test yourself. Tonight, perhaps tomorrow, set the timer for 10 minutes. Without opening the Bible, write as many promises down as you can. Do it. Don't rest and say, I think I know the promises, or I think I know a few promises. Discover how many promises you know. And then it would be good to start to pay attention in the Bible to how many promises are given. There are actually books that have been written which bring together promises. Now, some books of certain publishers include a lot of things that aren't necessarily promises. But you'll be able to discern that if you used a resource. The fundamental thing is, you and I need to become more familiar with the promises. If we need peace with God, we know it comes to us by Christ, but by Christ embraced by faith, rested upon, lived upon by faith. If we need to grow in holiness, we know that comes to us by grace, but Christ embraced and lived upon and so on. If we need to grow in maturity, we know that God gives wisdom. And so we're to ask of God, but we're to ask in faith. Nothing doubting, nothing wavering. You see, the point is we must learn the promises, find them, understand them, document them, meditate upon them. But then seek the Lord that He would give you desires for them. Ezekiel 36, of course, in context was so plain and evident. What Israelite in captivity hearing Ezekiel 36 wouldn't say, that's what I want. They want the promises. In other words, they're not pulled out, pulled out as a party you know, trick to say, look how many promises I can recite. The promises what the appetite because the promises disclose to us the good things that God will do for us. Brethren, as you desire them, you are then to pray. Yes, in the name of Christ. But you're to pray and ask the Father through Christ and for Christ's sake, here's what you've promised. It's not my word. See, all of a sudden the importance of so many things that are basic to us. Why is it important to see the Bible as the Word of God? Because prayer will die so soon as the Bible is not seen as the Word of God. When we see the Bible as the Word of God and these promises are God's promises to us, then we may come with the confidence, God, You have promised it. And now for Your great name's sake, I ask, fulfill it. Those things which are personal unto me, those things which are uh, guaranteed to your church, bring these to pass. Brethren, if you want your prayers to multiply, to enliven, to be warmed and strengthened, it won't be by your own strengthening of yourself. It will be by seeing how strong the promises of God are. Learn the promises. Desire the promises. Pray the promises with this encouragement that God will yet be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. 
I will increase them with men like a flock. What's he saying? Ask, and you will receive. Would you stand with me for